We'll be in Genesis 35. Um, we are slowly getting to the end of Genesis, so I'm trying to, now that you have well over half of the book, I'm trying to show you that Genesis has these massive theological themes in it, okay? So one of them, for instance, is how God de deals with evil. And you see that on page three, right? Chapter three, Adam and Eve become evil. God does not cut them off. He actually pursues them, speaks to them, protects them. Right, Cain kills, God marks him and protects him. Very different than how most people think God responds to evil and to sin, right? So you see that. I think throughout this, we have seen since chapter 12 that the so-called heroes in Genesis are pretty flawed. You see there's a lot of problems with them that the carriers of the promise become part of the problem. And you're gonna see that echoed all the way through the Old Testament. It doesn't end here, all right? So let me give you one more, and we'll kind of see it here. I think you can actually sum this book up in one word, and the word is rule. R-U-L-E, rule. Dude, you rule like that. <laughs> and here's why. Chapter one, you have creation. The pinnacle of creation is you and me. And what does God say to us? Rule right? You are my image bearers. What I do in the cosmos and in the entire universe, I want you to mirror that here on planet earth. You are my rulers. Have dominion. Rule over this place. I've given it to you. Okay, Adam and Eve blow it. And immediately, here's what you see in chapter four. Cain begins to have this war in him. God comes to him and says this, sin is crouching at your door. That the word crouching at your door, there's actually, it's a demonic term, like an animal waiting to pounce on you. It's waiting. And if, look out, Cain, because if you don't deal with this right, it will rule over you. So what was given in chapter one, page one, you are my rulers. I've given you all this stuff. By chapter three, what had been given to man now becomes a battle. And that battle for rule goes all the way through. Who's gonna rule now? Ken, are you gonna rule this thing? Or is this thing gonna rule over you? Which one's gonna rule? And then at the end of the book, chapter 22, new heavens, new earth, new creation, says there's no more night, right? There's no need for sun, there's no need for lamp because God's with us. And it says, at the end of that, it says, and they shall reign forever and ever. Rightful rule of the Imago Dei is finally restored. So really the book ends, it's, I want you to be rulers, you fail, but I'm gonna recreate you so that you can rule, end of the book. It's all about ruling. How, how do you rule, right? That's our identity. So a long time ago, my girls were little then. I tried to get like this idea through to my two older girls and, and Carissa was about six and Isabella was about four. And there was these people working at the end of our driveway and they were, you know, construction workers, like five of them. And we had passed by them. So that night at our devotions, I said, okay, girls, you saw those group of people down there and they were doing their things. Uh, how can you tell which of those five men was the boss? 
And so Carissa, my six-year-old said, why? Why do I care who's the boss? I'm like, okay, if you ask him, he will give you, if you figure out who the boss is, you can get a piece of candy from him. She's like, I don't want a piece of candy. Okay, what do you want? I want a horse. Okay, you would ask him for a horse. I don't care. That's not the point of this thing, right? Ask him for a pink unicorn. I don't care. Just answer the question, (laughs) right? So I finally get through that. My wife is just sitting over there going, nice work, honey. I'm like, thank you. So then Isabella's like, God's the boss. I'm like, God was not working on the road over there. So Bella's like, why wasn't he working on the road? I don't know. God doesn't do road work. I don't know. This is not the point, right? I mean, dealing with four and six years old. Yeah, it's a fun, fun thing. So then Chris is like, it's the one that had the shirt on that says, I'm the boss. Did you see a man with a shirt on that said, I'm the boss? She said, no, but it should be helpful. Okay. (laughs) I just gave up. I'm like, okay, this is not working. Have you heard about David and Goliath? Let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about something simple. But my, my, my point was like, the boss is the one that tells other people what to do, right? That's what the boss is. Hey, I want you to do this. And then, okay, I'm gonna go do this. So rule, if you look at the entire Bible, there's this rule. Genesis one and two is God saying, rule by listening to me. And if you'll listen to me, you'll eat of the tree of life and it'll be beautiful. But if you won't listen to me, if you won't rule by listening to me, God, God would say, then you'll eat of the tree of death and it'll be a bummer, right? It's one or the other, right? And really you see that echoed throughout the Bible. If you wanna rule well in your sphere and what God has you, listen. If you don't wanna rule well, then don't listen and it'll bring death, okay? So now if you echo this out, you get to this guy named Solomon, what was Solomon known for? Yeah, either wives, he had about a thousand wives. And he was also known for wisdom, which is like, you're like, hmm. Really? <laughs> Those two go together, but that's another story, okay? He is known for his wisdom. How did he get that wisdom? Right? First Kings chapter three, God appears to him and says, hey, I'll give you one wish. So what did he wish for? A hundred more wishes, right? That's what he always did as a kid. He wishes for a listening ear so that he could rule well. How, what does God respond to that? Is God happy about that? He's stoked, right? He's like, yeah, you got it. You were reflecting back on Genesis 1 and 2, and you realized the mistake there, and now you're saying, I don't want to make the same mistake Adam and Eve made by not listening to you and not ruling well. I want to hear from you so that I can be a good ruler. And God is so stoked, he's like, I'm going to give you everything else you never asked for. I'm going to give you life. Big, beautiful, right? You're going to be peace with your enemies. You're going to have tons of cash. You're going to, you're just going to, it's going to be awesome. Why? Because you figured it out. You're ruling by listening. Whenever you see in the Bible, God getting stoked, that should, immediately you should be like, I need to figure out why God is stoked right here. God's stoked. He's like, you finally got it. What I want is rulers that listen well. That's what I want. Okay. So now we come to Jacob. God has come to Jacob in Genesis 31 and said, get out of here. Go back to Bethel, right? Does he listen and rule his family well? 
No, he doesn't. He has halfway obedience. He makes it to this place called Shechem, stops in Shechem. What happens in Shechem? Really bad. Death. Death happens to him. His daughter is raped. There's murder and genocide. His family is tore apart. So he does not listen. He doesn't rule well. And there's death. Why he stays in Shechem? I don't know. But in chapter 35, what we have is God comes back to him and says, all right, now listen to me. And it'll bring resurrection, if you would, and life and redemption. And so now we come out of this death period for Jacob and we come into a pretty beautiful time. This is when the tide turns. And it actually took 10 years. Everything's compressed in the Bible. It took 10 years from the time that Jacob leaves Laban until he makes it to Bethel. So it's a slow slide. People never like jump straight into junk. It's always a slow slide. So it's a 10 year slide down that leads to this rape and this genocide that God comes and calls him back out. And this time he listens. So let's jump in. Verse one, chapter 35. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. We looked at this pretty quick on Sunday. I'll make a couple of notes. Number one, they have all these idols. This, by the way, is the first time you see in the Bible the tension between Yahweh and these idols, that there is an exclusiveness with Yahweh. If you're gonna serve Yahweh, then what that means is you are saying no to these other things over here, to these idols. So this is the first time we see that, mm, that separation, okay? So where did these idols come from? Yeah, so you have Rachel stole her dad's household gods, but it appears they had added to them because now they have these earrings that are attached to more idols. So part of the added idols were when they were hanging out in Shechem for 10 years, they just started to kind of adopt in some of the practices of the Hivites, the Hittites, or the Hivites rather, there in Shechem, and they take in their idols as well. It's classic. 1 Corinthians 10.32. Look out. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? Now, if you have smart kids and you tell them that when they're hanging out with people you don't want them to, guess what they'll say to you? But dad, how do I share Jesus with them then? Right? You're like, ooh, okay. Here's my answer. It's real simple. Are you a sponge or a vacuum cleaner? Are you a thermostat or a thermometer? Here's what I mean. Sponges just absorb all the nastiness around them, right? 
Vacuum cleaners clean up the place. Which are you? When you're out with your friends, are you absorbing the junk that they're doing or are you the one that's actually cleaned up and causing them to live differently? A thermometer just goes to the temperature of the room. Whatever the room is, it does what the room is doing. A thermostat sets the temperature. Which are you? Okay, and I'll usually know because when you get home, I'll just kind of squeeze you a bit and I'll see what comes out of you. And if it's a bunch of junk, hmm. If it's Jesus, I'm like, awesome. So that's my question for anyone that's saying, hey man, why can't I do this? Why can't I hang with them? Well, what are you? Are you a thermometer or a thermostat? Are you a sponge or are you a vacuum cleaner? What are you? Because in the right situation, totally, it's awesome. It's good. Jesus hung out with bad people all the time. But Jesus never sucked up their junk, never took in their idols, never became like them. He always brought the level up and changed the environment and asked good questions and brought in godliness. If you're doing that, hey, hang out with whoever you want. If on the other hand, you're a sponge, then be careful. Be careful who you're absorbing, all right? So they absorb a bunch of idols. That's what they do there for 10 years. Then for some reason, for 10 years, he has avoided, Jacob has avoided going to Bethel. And like, I can't figure that out. It's the place God meets him. Seems like a really good, I've actually been there. It's beautiful. It's a great spot. It's up high. It's like, why doesn't he want to go back to Bethel? Maybe there's money in Shechem. I don't know. Maybe apathy. Here's what I think though. I think it's because he knew he had sin in his camp. He knew I've got idols in my house. I've got this stuff that's happening and I kind of don't want to go there because God's there. And I'm afraid if I go there, it's not going to work out right. Ever met people like that? I'll invite people to church and they'll be like, oh, I can't go to church, man. People like me don't belong in church. I say, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> you so belong in church. You're just like us. Trust me. My favorite example of this was this guy that I had been meeting with and talking with and kept inviting him to church. He's, I don't want to go to church, man. And this is what his biggest excuse was this. He goes, whenever I go to church, nobody sits with me. They somehow know that I'm messed up and literally there will be a seat on both sides of me. Nobody will sit with me. I'm like, dude, that will not happen at Edgewater. I finally get him here. It was at a 11 o'clock service. Packed that 11 o'clock service. I get up here, I look over, he's sitting right there. Guess what? Empty seat on both sides of him. I'm like, oh my goodness, it happened to him again. So I went and talked with him afterwards and it, we had just started our prayer thing. And I said, hey man, how, how you doing? I'm, I'm so glad you made it. So what'd you think? He's like, I loved it. Now I'm thinking, great message. Obviously you loved it. So what did you love? He goes, the prayer time. I said, why? He said, because you guys were praying for guys addicted to drugs and you guys were praying for people with messed up marriages. I'm like, hey, that's just like me. And then it kept going on, more drugs, more marriage. I'm like, you guys are worse than me. I don't know if I should be here. <laughs> like, I was like, that's so awesome. <laughs> You're right. We're just like you. The only difference is we've met someone that we know can change us and make us just like him, right? People that say, man, I can't go to church because I've sinned. I'm like, that's like saying, I'm not going to the hospital because I'm sick. What's well, ridiculous. No, this is the place that you belong. And for some reason, Jacob here, maybe he feels his own sin. Maybe he's looking at his idols. He won't go down there. It really takes God coming and saying, get up, get down there, and that finally does it. We need to be a people 
that keep telling others, you can come back to Bethel. You can come back to Bethel. I know you've been in Shechem. I know maybe there's idols in your house. Listen, you can come back to Bethel. So we were driving home last night from the uh, Hidden Valley soccer game, which my team won. And I don't know if, uh, if this is normal for dads, but I think I was more excited that my daughters won than they were. I'm like, you're in, like, ah, I'm like, ah, like I won a pageant or something. And they're like, I know dad. I'm like, no, do you understand how big this is? Like, is that normal for dads to do? I'm feeling like I'm one of those weird dads now. I think I am. So anyway, we're driving home from that. I'm really excited about that. And one of my daughters was uh, getting some text messages from a girl that had been involved in church and stuff. And she's kind of separated and gone Shechem for a little while. And she was writing stuff that was, um, you know, a little bit alarming. And so my daughter's like texting back and forth. And she was telling her, essentially, you're welcome back at Bethel. Come hang out with us. Come listen. And God forgives you. Come back. And, And then at the end of this, this girl just text back and just said, you have blessed me so much. Thank you. You've changed my day. We can do that. We can keep telling people, listen, you don't have to live in Shechem anymore. There's all that nastiness. You can come back to Bethel any time. If you look at Jesus, Jesus continually front-loaded acceptance. Didn't he? To Zacchaeus, the tax collector up in the tree. Hey, let's go have dinner. He's not, hey, man, you got to stop your tax collecting, get rid of your idols, take care of your junk, pay back people that you've stolen from. No, let's have, let's have, let's have dinner. Like he front loads acceptance. And then people, when they get close to Jesus, what happens to Zacchaeus after that dinner? And I repent for what I'm doing. I'm going to pay back people five times what I took from them. I'm changing my life. Why? Because Jesus has that effect on people. We just keep telling them, you're welcome back in Bethel, right? Then notice... When he says this, get rid of your idols, his family has no pushback, right? They go one step further. Hey, let's give you your idols. I'm taking on this earring that kind of represents that idol as well. Dads, your family's waiting for you to rule well, to lead well. That's really what they're waiting for. They're waiting for a dad to say, as for me and my house, this is how we're going to do it. Jacob waits 10 years to do it. He didn't have to. Your family's waiting for you to rule well like Jesus. Maybe Jacob doesn't do it because he knows he's a sinner and he feels like a blow-it case. I think sometimes that condemnation on dads causes us not to make the decisions we should. Oh, you know, I did that when I was a kid too. It doesn't matter. Don't stay in Shechem. It's, It's nasty there. Get to Bethel. Take your family to Bethel. That's what you do. Get rid of this junk. He leads. And then finally, I love the word, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods. Not most, not all but one, every single last one of them. There was no backup idol. It wasn't, well, if this Bethel thing doesn't work out, we've at least got this one little idol. They give them all. Romans 13, 14 says this, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You don't have a backup plan. Make no provision for the flesh. This guy who, great guy, had smoked marijuana for 25 years, had this conversation with him a number of years ago. 
finally quit. I said, How, how'd you do that? He goes, well, I, you know, I tried quitting a hundred times. And then he said, I prayed. I said, Jesus, I want you to take this away from me. He said, that day I got high again and it was the weirdest high. He goes, I had a bad high. Weird, just, it, it was the weird, it, it so freaked me out. He said, for the first time in my life, I took everything. I didn't leave a backup bong in my closet. I took everything that I had. I smashed it up. I put it in the garbage can. I took it out. It was taken away. He goes, I have not, it, was, it had been 15 years from then. I have not smoked marijuana since. Because I have a backup plan. I said, okay. I am 100% done with this. All their gods. Took them all. Such wisdom there. You want reviving, I think right here is such a giant key to revive life. So Jacob now listens and begins to rule his family well. And verse six, verse five says, they journeyed and a terror from God fell upon the cities that were round about them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So chapter 34, there was genocide, probably relatives, intermarriages, all this stuff. So normally the tribes around there would gather together and get vengeance, but they don't because terror from God falls on them. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. Luz was the Canaanite name. Jacob named it Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who are with him and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, God in the house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. I just say right here, he's all in now. And I love verse five. God fights for them. And you can read this and you'd be like, man, they were, they were blowout cases in chapter 34. I think God would say, yeah, but they're my blowout cases. And so I still fight for them. Yeah, I know they made massive mistakes in chapter, and I don't condone that one bit, but they're still my blowout cases and I'm still gonna protect them. I love that. So at the soccer game yesterday, Charity and I just had our two new kids, Hunter, who's three, and Harry, who's two months old. And Hunter, if you haven't seen him, uh, he is the cutest three-year-old in the world. Now, Myron, my son is four, so I'm safe there. He's the cutest three-year-old in the world. Like, he just grows on you. He just has these giant blue eyes. He looks like a little angel. So he just, you just, he's really, really growing on me. Um, so I'm with him and uh, we're hanging out for like 10 hours together. Uh, and uh, he had to go to the bathroom, so that's my duty with him. So I'm kind of on hunter duty because Charity's on Harry duty, so I'm hunter. So I take him to the bathroom, and I, I don't know, maybe in his upbringing, but he just likes to strip down naked when he goes to the bathroom. So I'm like, you can't do that in here. This is a public restroom. <laughs> you have to leave your pants on, all right? So we, we get that taken care of, but then he has like this stage fright thing, so I always like have to leave him alone. I'm like, okay, buddy. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. I'm like, Hunter, you done? No, okay. So he's at the little urinal. I'm like, Hunter, you done? No. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And then finally, I, I hear him say, Daddy, look at this. And I look over and he's got the screen from the urinal and he's bringing it up to his face. 
And I was like, ah! Like, I just was like, don't, don't, don't! Like, knock it out of there. I was like, ah, it's on me! And I'm like, oh, man! I was like, yeah! <laughs> oh, man. And so I'm right in the middle like this. Dude, you can't touch that! When I didn't know someone was in there. The stall door opens and this guy walks out. And he just goes... And just walks out. I was like, I know. <laughs> what can you say? I mean, I was just, yeah. So here's what I did not do. I'm like, that's it. Dude, you're finding your own ride home. You are not getting in my car with those hands. Right? No. Why? Because he belongs to me. So it was, oh, dude, never, never, never grab anything out of this region. Never, right? Do not ever touch that. Okay, okay, okay. And they would scrub your hands, scrub them. Like I was in there for like 15 minutes, just scrub and scrubbing my hands. I'm like, easy. I still am kind of like, I don't know if I want to eat with this hand. I'll just eat with this hand. I'm just, I didn't give up on him. Why? Because he belongs to me. That's what God says. I know, Matt. He touches things that he should not touch. And he's put his hand in the urinal. But you know what? He's mine. I know Jacob, yeah, he's got idols, and yes, chapter 35, but it doesn't matter. He's mine. If you don't get anything from Genesis, get God's faithfulness. He's mine. I know he's a blow case, but he's my blow case, and I'm not giving up on him, and I will protect him from all the people that want to get him. It's amazing. And then secondly, he builds this altar he called the place El Bethel. This is the second altar that Jacob has built. The first altar was back in Shechem. It was the right thing to do, but it was in the wrong place. And guess what? It didn't work. It didn't help him. It didn't protect him. It didn't change anything. Because yeah, it was the right thing to do, but it was in the absolute wrong place to do it. It was token obedience. It was almost like, okay, God, I kind of know I'm in the wrong spot here, but I think if I do these things over here, then you're going you're gonna to owe me something. And God's like, I don't play that game. I don't play that game. It's Amos 5, where Amos the prophet says, God hates it when you go to church. He hates it when you sing songs. He hates it when you do these sacrifices. Why? Because you're playing God for a fool. You're thinking he doesn't see the rest of your life that you're doing all this other junk on the side. He thinks you don't, you're acting like he doesn't know that. You can't play God like that. So God says, I hate it when you're in church because you're playing me for a fool. Don't do that. Be honest with me. Don't try to do the, the token thing to appease me like I'm some kind of angry deity. That's not who I am. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. I want a relationship with you. I want to be real with you. Don't do that to me. So Jacob had done that and it did not work, not at all. So I have a uh, great respect for C.S. Lewis. He has this article, I guess it's an essay in Mere Christianity. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, little recommendation, great book, great book. And he talks about the, how Christianity is both harder and easier than religion. Like it's easier because it's grace and this stuff, but it's harder in this other ways. And then he, then he says this, he, he compares it to, like generosity, religious generosity, he says he compares it to an honest man paying his taxes. Who here loves paying their taxes? One guy who doesn't pay taxes, probably. <laughs> no one loves to pay taxes, right? You would just kind of like, oh, okay, 
And he said, that's how a lot of, when you're religious and you give away something, you do it like you pay taxes. All right, if I have to, okay. And then, then he says this, if you do it that way, um, and then people don't notice you, then you get mad, right? Like, don't people know how much I'm giving here? And he says this, quote, once you become that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have if you just remained selfish. I love that. And here's what he says. This is the cure to it. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the truth, drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That's Christianity. Religion is, oh, I'm gonna give God just a little part. Christianity is everything. Not half obedience, not a little bit, not a token to God. It's either you're all in or you're not in. So Romans 12 says, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. And so Jacob finally is obeying and doing it in the right way, in the right place. He's all in. And here's what happens. God now appears to Jacob and came to him, verse nine, from Paddanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Same term he uses with Abraham. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him to the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is just the reminder. Number one, I talked about this on Sunday. He reminds Jacob of his new identity. Not Jacob, heel snatcher, deceiver, liar. Your new identity is Israel, which means prevailer or winner. Tons of my counseling my guidance biblically with men is one thing, your identity in Christ. No, that's what you were. Okay, you tell me all that. Okay, that's what you were. This is what you are. And there's usually this like pushback against it. And I almost always go to Colossians chapter one, verses 11 through 15, because it just starts to lay out there. This is what God has done. And I say, who did that for you? God has qualified you for an inheritance in Christ. Who qualifies you? You or God, 
right? It just goes on and on. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Who transferred you? You or God? It just, it's, it's 100% God's work creating in you a new identity, just like he does here for Israel. And I just hammer it. And what I do is actually have the person read it. And then I'll stop. Who did that for you? Right? Who did that for you? Who did that for you? Who did that for you? And just over and over, God did, God did, God did, God did. Right. Just like Jacob. He's the one that gives a new identity. And then God secondly repeats to Jacob all the promises he'd made back in chapter 28, 30 years before. Why does God repeat these promises to Israel, to Jacob? It'd be like this. Wives, do you like it when your husband says you're beautiful and I love you? Can he say that too often to you? Are you like, you know, you told me that when we got married 20 years ago, that, that was good for me. You don't have to worry about saying it ever again. Is anyone like, any wife like that? No way. We need, it's, it's a human need. We need to be constantly retold God's promises and God's goodness towards us. You will never tire of it. The book of Galatians is the gospel for believers. It's God retelling the gospel, not to unbelievers, not trying to get people saved. It's the gospel being retold to believers. Most of the New Testament is written to believers because we need it. We need this constant inflow of God and what he thinks about us. I know you've been blown it for 10 years, Jacob, but that does not change the fact that I still see you as Israel prevailer, winner. And I love that. And then Jacob, what he does, he responds by worshiping and he does the same thing he had done 30 years ago back in Bethel. Nothing new. It's almost an identical retelling of what happened in chapter eight, happens, or chapter 28 happens again. Here's what I think. I think we make the Christian walk too complicated. We act like, well, I need to like advance to the 33 degree of Christians. No, you don't. I think the Christian walk is a lot like marriage, right? Marriage doesn't get more complicated. The problems with marriage is, is one of the, the two stopped doing what they did when they dated. That's where the main problem with marriage is. If you just keep doing what you did when you dated, like, oh, I can't see her enough. Oh, I can't talk to him enough. Oh, I can't write letters enough. Oh, I can't buy him enough stuff. Like if you kept doing that, man, you're gonna have the best marriage in the world. But what happens in marriages? You stop doing those simple things you did when you dated and then it falls apart. That's what happens in most marriages. That's Christianity. It's, man, what I did day one is the same thing I should probably be doing on day 1,000. It's the same thing I should probably be doing on day 10,000. It's what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. So here's what you need to do. Repent. Remember what you used to do and redo your first things again. Just what you did in chapter 28. Keep doing it. Christianity is simple. We make it complicated. It's like dating. Keep doing what you used to do, right? So all this is good. Then verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel and when there, when there are still some distance from Ephra, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor 
And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have a son. And as her soul was departing for she was dying, interesting terminology right there. She called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. Ben-Onai means son of my sorrows, which maybe isn't the best name. So immediately dad steps in and goes, I think I'll call him son of my right hand, better name. So immediately called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrah, that is in Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And Israel sojourned on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Um, this place, Jacob's, Rachel's tomb is still famous to this day. I've been there. Um, hundreds of thousands of people visit it every single year. Usually there's a clash there. It's in Hebron between Palestinians and Israels and there's like fights and wars. And I, I found a bullet there. Like, the, 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 like it had hit something, a piece of brick or something. That's this place. It's like a, a place of turmoil to this day. Um, Jacob's doing everything right and his wife dies. You can do everything right in life and still have hard times because we live in a broken world. We live in a world that's not the way it was and it's not the way it will be. Our hope is one day it becomes the way God wants it to. But right now in the middle, there'll be hard things like this and it's gonna get even weirder. Look at verse 22. Well, Israel lived in that land, which is interesting. He's not in Bethel. He's in a different land. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went in and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Huh? <laughs> right? How many times in Genesis have you said that? Man. So Reuben, firstborn patriarch of Israel. This is our George Washington's, Abraham Lincoln's, Thomas Jefferson's, Benjamin Franklin's, Jonathan Adams, who, John Adams. It's, 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 these are the founding fathers of Israel. And we have this story about Reuben going in and sleeping with his dad's wife. Is that crazy? Here's why it's crazy, okay? If this book was just made up, why is that in here? Right? Why would you include this crazy little thing about one of the heroes, you know, one of the fathers of the tribes, one of the patriarchs, why would you ever include this story? You wouldn't. Historians know this. History is always written by the, does anybody know? The winners. The winners always write history. For thousands of years, the only people that got to tell the story was the winner. And guess how the winner would tell the story? I went down there. I crushed them. They were, you know, they succumbed to my great plan. Militarily, they had twice as many people as me, 10 times as many people as me, but I routed them and I destroyed them and I took from them everything they had, right? That's the way you read any ancient history. Read the siege on Le Leches. That's exactly what he says. Read about Nebuchadnezzar. Historians know, they always have to take, well, you know, I don't know if it actually went down like that. I think they won because they wrote the history, but I don't know if it actually went like that. The Bible is the only book that doesn't do that. 
The only ancient book that does not do that, it stands alone in that. It allows its heroes to not look like it. I love that. One of my favorite verses is in the New Testament. It's after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's Matthew 28. They meet Jesus on this hill, right? Jesus is going to ascend up into the clouds back to the right hand of the Father. It says, they all worship Jesus, but some doubted. I love that. I mean, can you believe that? Jesus had just been nailed to a cross, stuck in a grave for three days, resurrected, knocked the stone off. He, he's able to appear and disappear, do this stuff. He floats up in the sky and someone's like, yeah, I just don't know. I got a brother-in-law in Vegas. He does stuff like that. I just don't know, you know? I mean, you're like, oh, how real is that? Because that's just like me. God can show me these incredible things and show me this awesome stuff. I'm like, yeah, I just don't know, you know? It's so real. That's why I love this book. It's like nothing else. So here included in our story is this. Now, why does Reuben do it? It's either passion or a power play. Most people believe it's a power play. So here's the dynamics of polygamy. Here's why polygamy is so wrong. So you have Rachel's the number one wife. Underneath her is her servant. Then it's Leah. And then it's her servant. There's a, you know, a pecking order. Now Rachel's gone. She's dead. Guess who now becomes number one wife? Bilhah, unless Reuben defiles her. And then Israel says, she's not. So then who's now? Reuben's mom, Leah. So a lot of people believe Reuben did this to make his mom become number one. She's been overlooked my whole life. I'm sick and tired of it. She's gonna be number one now. I don't know why. That at least gives it a little bit of like, okay. Still gross, still weird, all because of polygamy. And you have this story in here included that shows, listen, the carriers of the promise are also part of the problem. Reuben is, all right? Hmm. So here, here's how this thing concludes. Um, now the sons of Jacob were 12. Now we have 12. We're wrapping up the story of Jacob. We're gonna move into now the story of Joseph. The sons of Leah, Reuben's Jacob, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Pad Dan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiribath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Okay, Isaac passes away. If you remember Isaac, um, in chapter 27, old, blind, he had said, bring Esau to me because I'm about to die. And that has started our story about Jacob and Esau and the battle and the deceit and all that kind of stuff. That was 43 years before. Oh, I got this pain. I think I'm going to die, right? 43 years goes by. He doesn't die. Oh my goodness, how awkward is that for Jacob? Like, hey, how's your dad doing? I heard he was sick. Nah, he's fine. <laughs> how many years has it been? 20? He's still fine? Yeah, you know, I don't know. He thought he was gonna die 
40 years ago. He's still alive. He's still alive? Oh my goodness. Listen, can I give you some advice? I'm a young man, but can I give you some advice if you're older? Live. Live. For you're not dead. Don't act like you're dead. My plan is until I'm 90 to act like I'm a teenager. Because I think that's what Caleb did. 84 years old, I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. So give me that mountain because I'm heading for it. I think that's how Paul lived. He goes, I finished my course with joy, not with grumbling and complaining and pain and agony and how bad the world is and oh, I can't stand it and this next generation and the millennials and no, with joy. Man, that's the only way to live, I think personally, All right? So chapter 36, I'm not gonna read it. You are welcome to read it. It is a bunch of names. It's all about Esau. And so Esau's chapter is closing. Jacob's chapter is closing. Isaac's chapter, his chapter has just closed. And in chapter 37, we meet really the main character for the rest of the book of Genesis, except for chapter 38, which is a really crazy chapter. It's like, why is that in there as well? Um, the only reason why it's in there, get, you know the only reason why chapter 38 is in the Bible? Jesus, it's always the answer, I'm telling you, right? It is the lineage of Jesus in chapter 38. Other than that, there's no reason for it to be there. And so whoever authored Genesis 37, 38, I think it was Moses, people debated, I don't care about any of that. The only reason why it's there is because Jesus, because it becomes the lineage of Jesus. So anyways, so 36 is Esau, Esau um, one note on it. Esau leaves the promised land. He goes and creates his own kingdom, makes his kingdom, okay? You have eight kings by verse 31. What I think chapter 36 is telling you and me is this. You can get rule really quick the secular way. You can become a ruler by manipulating and power and doing these kind of things really quick, the secular way, but it won't last. Who's heard of the Edomites today? Ever met an Edomite? No. Have you met an Israelite? Yeah. It will be 800 years before there's a king in Israel and they're not very good. It will be 1800 years until the true king comes because spiritual greatness grinds and takes a long time. And you gotta be patient. The Christian walk is not growing grass. The Christian walk is growing a tree. But that tree lasts and it's deep and it's good and it's earthly and it's wonderful. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus, his last temptation is take the secular easy way out. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of earth. Which is fascinating because Satan is saying he has them. They're in my possession right? You don't have to go through this. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to be beaten. You have to do it that way. I'll give you the easy way out. Real spiritual growth and formation is a dirt path called sanctification. And it takes time and effort and energy, but you grow a tree. That's what happens. And God, here's the good news. God never gives up on you. Just like with Jacob, 30 years of, oh, are you kidding me? And God comes back time and time and time again because God does not give up on those that belong to him. So Jesus.
Thank you for the story of Jacob. Thank you how honest this book is and how real it is, how it doesn't pretend or play, but it reflects our own personal realities. And more importantly, it demonstrates your nature. And so I pray for any in here, here who may have been condemned, feeling like a Jacob with idols in their home. I pray that in Genesis 35, they would have met the God of Jacob who still comes and still works and still speaks and still loves and still protects and still says, you're not Jacob, you're Israel. May we meet you because when we do, we're changed. Like Zacchaeus, we get out of our tree have a meal with you and we repent and say, we wanna be different. I pray for any in here who have wondered about the time it takes for spiritual formation, that we see sometimes things compressed in the Bible when it's actually 30 years has gone by. May we know that you are so patient with us, that you have pity on us like a father has pity on a child, knowing that we are but dust. And that you are in the process of changing us and transforming us and growing us to become just like you. So that one day we'll take back our rightful places, ruling and reigning with you for eternity. So may we trust you our good and generous Father. May we go from here equipped to be used in our homes, to rule well, to rule well in neighborhoods, to rule like you, like Jesus, in workplaces. May we go from here better equipped to do that. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.